Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Today, Pastor Lunsford is continuing his sermon series in the book of Hebrews. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. It's been interesting to watch the, the weather reports from the East Coast. Thankfully, we don't live there. You know, when you, when you see those, the, you know, the news shots, there's always some guy trying to drive through with his pickup truck, and the water's way up there, and you think, what are you thinking? Weren't you watching the news last time this happened? I guess he's probably thinking the same thing I was thinking when I drove our whole family through a fairly long stretch of Highway 101 in Tillamook on one of our annual Thanksgiving vacation treks when that road was flooded out. Oh yeah, we can make it through. (laughs) Of course, if I hadn't made it through, I would be somewhere near Japan by now. But... uh, you know, they, there, was a, there was a semi-truck, and, and the police officer said, you can follow him through, and there was a whole bunch of us that went through. So we, we followed right in the, the wake of the semi-truck, and, and as we got about halfway across, the water started to come in the car. And I thought, this is not a good thing. And <laughs> we gunned the old Taurus and made it, a, made it through. <laughs> Do you listen to warnings? <laughs> If you're a real man, you don't read directions and you don't read yellow signs on the side of the road, right? Oh, yeah, that's just for those weak people, you know, or whatever. God is going to give us the most stern warning in the Scripture, I believe, for Christians today in Hebrews chapter 10. We've been working our way through this book and and there are some very challenging passages both to understand and live and, might I say, to accept. And Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26, is one of those challenging passages. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, quote, vengeance is mine, I will repay, unquote, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's, it's interesting that as I was studying this passage this week, uh, Carl Bender called me up and he says, uh, Boy, I'd like to get a copy of that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands, in the hands of an Angry God. 
Well, you're going to get my version of it today, Carl. The first thing that we have to understand is, who is this passage of Scripture written to? Who is the warning for? Certainly there are some folks who have read this and come up with what I would believe to be misunderstandings of the Scripture. So we ask ourselves, who is being warned? And in verse 26, the author says, for if we sin willfully. Anytime the author of Scripture includes himself in a command, he's obviously talking about himself as a Christian and his Christian brothers and sisters. If we sin willfully. Also, we would understand that verse 19 and following, and, and let's just pick out uh, between verses 19 and 25, we would look at verse 24 and say, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. We all know that applies to Christians. Any of us who have known the Lord for any length of time know that verse 24 and 25 are, are shall we say, a famous Bible text about the church and about the ministry of the church, of the believers. It seems quite normal that if he's talking about believers in verses 24 and 25, and in verse 32, he talks to believers by saying, Recall the former days in which you were illuminated. You endured a great struggle of sufferings. You were made a spectacle. And he goes on and on. If in the verse before this passage and the verse after this passage, he's talking to Christians, it seems to me the most obvious understanding is he's talking to Christians in verses 26 through 31. The passage starts with the word we, and then the people who are addressed. He says, these people knew the truth. And the word for knowledge in verse 26, to have the knowledge of the truth, is a strengthened form of the word. There was a word in Greek for knowledge, the word gnosis. It's spelled G-N-O, gnosis. This word has a prefix on the front of that word to make it stronger, fuller, bigger, to really know, to know it personally, to know it experientially. These people knew the truth. We don't typically call an unbeliever a person who knows the truth. Also, these people are compared in verse 28 to those in the Old Testament under Moses' care. And it would be my understanding of the Old Testament scenario that when those people, the, the point of faith for those Old Testament saints was when they were in Egypt and God said, I'm going to come through here with a terrible plague and you need to sacrifice a lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, be inside eating the lamb and doing this other prescribed ritual. If you believe me, you'll do that. And if you do that, I'll spare you punishment. That was their point of faith. And yet they came out into the wilderness and came under God's judgment. And these people are being compared to those people, Old Testament believers, New Testament believers. I believe this passage is referring to Christians. Now we might ask the question, could the truth of this passage apply to others or non-Christians? And I would say certainly yes, God's word can be applied in multiple ways. I think that would be especially pertinent here for a person who has been in church for a long time and might even consider themselves to be a Christian but has never fully embraced Christ. I think there is an element of application in this passage of Scripture. John MacArthur said this about this dual application. We cannot always determine who is apostate. That means a believer who is leaving the faith... Uh, uh, a supposed believer 
not a true believer, but a supposed one who has walked away, and one who is backsliding. And he says we should not try to determine the difference. We are not able to distinguish between a disobedient carnal believer and an apostate unbeliever. That is the Lord's business. Suffice it to say, if you're a Christian and here today, this passage of Scripture is for you. So what is the danger that he warns us against? I would like to call this danger spiritual rebellion. Spiritual rebellion. You cannot rebel unless you know what you should be doing. One of the mistakes that parents make, I believe, is spanking their children for things that the child didn't clearly know were wrong. The Old Testament says we should spank our children. I believe in that. I practiced it. My daughter's not in counseling. I believe and practice it, but I always made very sure that they knew exactly what the standard was before so that there'd be no confusion. God says there is such a thing as spiritual rebellion. And how does he define it? Look at verse 26. If we sin willfully. If we sin willfully. The word sin here as a verb is written in the present tense. Written in the present tense. And in the Greek language, that infers ongoing action. I believe the, uh, the, uh, uh, the New International captures the feeling of this translation when it says, if we deliberately keep on sinning. Now, all of us as Christians sin. Okay? I don't believe that this warning is directed to where you are, to where every one of you is today, I would hope that very few of you are in the position to need this warning today. You know, I, we sin and we confess our sin and, and we're right with God. And we sin and we confess our sin and we're right with God. That is God's intention for us, not intention that we sin, but it is our, His intention that we are always making things right by confessing our sin. But here, he talks about somebody with an ongoing lifestyle of willful or deliberate sin. The concept of willful here, we might put this common phrase with it, first degree. You know, there's manslaughter, and then there's several degrees, and then there's first degree murder, which is premeditated. person sat around and thought about it and planned it out and then went and did it. That's the kind of sin he's talking about here. Willful sin, planned sin, ongoing sin. In uh, verse 28, he uses the term rejected to talk about sin in the Old Testament. He said, in the Old Testament, there were people who rejected Moses' law. This word literally means to, to make nothing of the law. It's kind of like this. This is the common way we express it. When somebody's saying something we don't want to hear, this is what we do. La, 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 la. I can't hear you. I don't know what you're saying. They're still talking, and whatever it is they are saying is still being said, but we are ignoring it. We are saying, no, it's not happening. I'm not listening. I'm not paying attention. When a believer says, I know what God says, but... That's the person who's coming under 
who potentially is coming under this warning. One author said this, sinning without all the facts is bad, but sinning when all of the divine truth has been revealed is worse. Think about it, parents, with your children. There certainly are times when our kids foolishly do something and it upsets us, but when you tell them to do one thing and the next minute they look you right in the eye with that look. Say, I'm going this way. That is what this is talking about. So, oh, I, I never do that, Pastor Dave. I hope you don't. Because frankly, this warning scares me. I've had people sit in my office and tell me, I don't care what God says. And, and you know, I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't know this passage of Scripture that well, but I said something to them that's in this passage, and I'm going to say it to you later on today. Oh, have mercy. The action that is to be avoided, the danger that is being warned against is spiritual rebellion. It is not the, the accidental, it is not the, the habitual where we struggle with sin, but we make things right. It is the lifestyle of sin by the believer. What is the consequence to be avoided here? Look at verse 27. God says, if you sin willfully, verse 26, there, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Now, does that verse mean Christ cannot forgive you? No. The blood of Christ is enough to forgive all the sins that have ever been committed and ever will be committed. I believe in unlimited atonement. It is enough to cover every sin always. But if you have decided that you are going to live outside of Christ... What is there to pay for your sins? Nothing. Because you have removed yourself from the ongoing relationship with Christ. There is nothing left to take care of your sin. What is left, verse 27, a certain fearful expectation of judgment. The believer who actively lives in sin cannot expect the forgiveness of God, but has an expectation of judgment. 1 Peter 5.5 5 is a very poignant verse when it says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I've, I've always loved that word resist. It's, so, it's such a word picture for me, because the word resist, one of the ways to define it would be this, God goes to war with the proud. God goes to war with the proud. Sometimes I, I think we have a picture of God in heaven where he certainly blesses the righteous people, but the Christians who live in sin, it's sort of like God just kind of, well, okay, whatever. But that's not it. God resists the proud. You're there trying to do things, and God's on the other side. And God always wins. God resists the proud. He says there is only a fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. God gave us a very picturesque warning in Acts chapter 5. He didn't do this very much, 
But he did it once to get the point across. And those who do pay attention to warnings will be warned by it. Acts 5.1. A certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife. Well, in fact, we've got to back up to Acts 4, verse 36. Acts 4.36. And Joseph, who was named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man, verse five, chapter 5, verse 1, but a certain man named Ananias with, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds. And his wife also being aware of it, and they brought a certain part of the, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not yours? After it sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived of this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. See, Ananias saw Barnabas. Barnabas came in, he sold a piece of property, and he put the... Gave the offering. Everybody went, oh, look at Barnabas. Isn't he a great godly man? And he was a great godly man because only great godly men do that. And Ananias said, hey, babe, we're going to sell. You know, you know that back 40 we don't use anymore? We're going to sell that. And we're going to bring half the money and put it down because half of that back 40 is twice as much as what Barnabas gave. And I'm going to get on that elder board finally. Oh, yeah, I'm going to be chairman of that deacon board. Yes, sir. Do you notice what Peter said? Peter said, look, you didn't have to give any of this. God didn't do what he's about to do because he only gave half. He said, look, you can do whatever you want, but you have lied to God. Just as a sidebar, take that into account when you give. I'm not talking about the amount. I'm just saying, when you give, you are giving to the Lord. I know it's our offering bag and it goes into our general fund. But you're giving to the Lord. Verse 5. Then Ananias heard these words. Hearing these words, he fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. You see, everybody else in church was listening and heard the warning. But his wife wasn't in church. Verse 6, and the young man arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Hey, deacons, we'll have to put that on your list of duties, I guess. Verse 7, now it was about three hours later when his, life came, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, no cell phones, and Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much, certain amount. She said, yes, that's how much we sold it for. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of God? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last, and the young man came in, found her dead, carrying her out, and buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. 
Hey, folks, if somebody says that fear is a bad thing, they're wrong. Because there is a person we're supposed to fear, and it's God. Now, I don't believe that means that we're supposed to be living, shaking in our boots all of the time. But we should fear God enough that we don't come into church and say, look what I sold my property for. God says, you're going to lie to me? You're going to do it publicly? You're going to act like this? I'm going to require it of you. I believe that's the, the process, the concept that's being talked about in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, if we sin willfully, there is only a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. The, the fire of God is going to punish all of his adversaries someday. And you know what? God has no intention of using that fire for us Christians. God has no intention of using his wrath on Christians unless they are going to sin willfully. Unless they're going to look up to heaven and say, I don't care what you say. We are to be careful. Warren Wiersbe said this about this passage and about this verse. There is no need to water down words such as judgment and fiery indignation or worse punishment, quote unquote. We have already seen from the history of Israel that hardly anybody who was saved out of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb entered into the promised inheritance. Again, Entering the land pictures the life of blessing in the Lord. It does not picture making it to heaven. Warren Wearsby goes on, nearly all of them died in the wilderness. He says, there is a sin unto death, 1 John 5, 16. I encourage you to read that later on. Some of the Corinthian believers were disciplined and their lives taken because of their presumptuous sin. In 1 Corinthians 11.30, the passage that tells us about the Lord's Supper also says, when you come to the Lord's table, you be careful how you partake because if you are actively living in sin and yet saying, I'm going to receive the Lord's, uh, the Lord's body and blood in a picture through these elements, he says, some of you are sick and some of you are dead. I heard a pastor one time tell me, I hate to hear the phone ring on Monday morning after Communion Sunday. I said, thank the Lord that hasn't happened to me. Hearing who's in the hospital after taking communion. Now, could I just have a little sidebar here about communion? Some people say, yeah, I'm not right with the Lord, so I'm not going to take communion. That is not the intent of the scripture, friends. Do you think God up in heaven says, yeah, that's right, you just keep on living in sin. As long as you don't take communion, it'll be okay. Uh, duh. No, the intent is God puts this supper in front of you every month or however often your church might take it so that you will be faced with the fact that Jesus shed his blood and suffered for me and now how am I living for him? And the intent is that you confess your sin and be right and then receive that. God says you, you want to live in spiritual rebellion, you be careful because there are some points at which I am going to say that's it. 1 Corinthians 3, we won't take time to turn there, but it talks about the reward of the believer. 
It talks about the fact that all of the works we do for the Lord are being laid up in heaven as gold, silver, precious stone. But all the works we do for ourselves are laid up as, as wood, hay, and stubble. And the fire of God's evaluation someday is going to burn our works and whatever's left will be our treasure in heaven. And he says some people are going to be saved so as by fire. I take from that the fact that some people aren't going to have any reward and some people are going to have very minimal reward. They're still going to make it to heaven. Why is this warning so stern? Look with me back at Hebrews 10 and verse 28. The first thing that we see about the sternness of this warning is by comparison to the Old Testament. There is the relative wrong that is being done. He says here, anyone who rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we are told what we should make of the Old Testament. Uh, certainly, what we've learned as we've gone through Hebrews is we should not be making the Old Testament out to be a list of rules for us to follow today because the need for that ritual religion is gone when Christ came. But 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1, tells us what we should make of the Old Testament. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers, he's talking about his ancestors, uh, the, the people of Israel that went before him, all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, that's the Red Sea experience. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, that's the manna. All of them drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. When did they drink of Christ? When Moses struck the rock and the water came out, or Moses spoke to the rock and the water came out, they drank from that spiritual rock, which is Christ. You see, we, we find that out here in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 5. But with most of them, boy, that's a sad commentary. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent, to the intent that we, should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them fell dead. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained. And they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our warning upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, here's the moral to the story, Christian. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. This is a, another parallel passage of Scripture. He says, look, all these people put their faith in God. They, they were under the blood of the Lamb. They came out. They came through the Red Sea. They were led by the cloud of God. They came out into the wilderness, and they came to a point at which God was a little slow doing what they wanted. And so what did they do? They made their own idol and said, that's your God, the golden calf. 
And they worshipped him, and they had sexual immorality as acts of worship to this, this golden idol. And God came down, and boy, was he mad. And then there were other instances, and then they came to a point where they're going to send spies up into the, the promised land. This is where God wanted them to live. And they sent spies up, and the spies came back and said, oh, it's a wonderful place, but there's giants there. And we're like ants. And the people, people said, oh, we can't do it. And they refused to believe God in the conquering of the difficulties that they faced. And God said, that's right. You're going to wander in this wilderness for 20 years till everyone 20 years of age and older dies. And God says, Christian, the same thing can happen to you. You're going to wander in the wilderness until you die, never doing anything for the Lord, never enjoying the benefit of the promised land. Oh, you're going to go to heaven. No doubt about it. But you're not going to take anybody with you. And there won't be, as the song says, any jewels in your crown. And your life here on earth is going to be an uphill battle, and you'll spend your life blaming God, saying, how come God doesn't make my life better? And all the while, Revelation 3, verse 20 says, God is standing at the door saying, hey, hello, hello, anybody home? If you just open the door, I'll come in, we'll have fellowship, and it'll be wonderful. But you're saying, no, 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 no. I don't want God's way. It's got to be my way. What is the real wrong that's being done? Turn with me back to Hebrews 10. If this doesn't make you feel guilty, you probably are not a real believer today. If you are a believer living in sin and you can read this verse and realize what you are doing and keep on doing it, something is bad wrong in your heart. Look at verse 29 of Hebrews 10. Verse 28 says, look, the, the people in the Old Testament were judged. So there's a comparison there to us. And then verse 29, he says, of how much worse punishment, you know, if they were judged with physical uh, death and other kinds of problems, how much worse punishment do you suppose will the person be thought worthy who has, number one, trampled the Son of God underfoot. Number two, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. And number three, insulted the Spirit of grace. Trampling the Son of God underfoot. Oh, I would never do that, Pastor Dave. Every time you willfully sin, you say, I know it's wrong, I'm going to do it anyway. You're going, the Son of God is nothing. Say, well, I don't want to do that. Then stop your willful sinning. Is it going to hurt to get right with God? Yes, it's going to hurt. You're going to have to let go of some stuff. It might be a person. You might have a relationship, and you're just tied to this person, and you can't live without him. I'm telling you, folks, you can't live without God. And that person will not do for you what God will. And you need to let go of that person and say, oh, God, I've got to let go. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe there's something that you are physically enslaved to. And you say, oh, I can't live without it. I know it feels that way. You've got to let go. Because if you don't, God cannot 
Maybe it's where you are, who you are. Maybe you're something in your pond. Maybe you're the big fish in your pond. When I go to work, people say, there he is. And maybe you have to let go of that. God says we have to come in to his family and live in his family like a little child which is dependent, not independent. We have to let go of our sin so we, first of all, stop trampling the Son of God underfoot. Number two, so we stop counting the blood of the covenant as a common thing. In the King James, the word is unholy, counting it as an unholy thing. The word is is one of the most interesting uses of a word, I think, in the New Testament. What we call the Greek of the New Testament is Koine Greek. And Koine is this word right here for common, and it literally means the common language. It's, he's saying to us, you are looking at the blood of Christ and saying, it's just dirt. It's just nothing. I had a deacon in my church in Boardman, Oregon that would talk about certain unbelievers and he'd say, they don't know whether the Lord was crucified or run over with a switch train. You know, and they don't care. What is the blood of Christ to you? I was at an ordination on Thursday. My, my intern from Tukwila, he'll be here to preach in a couple of weeks when I'm on vacation. And uh, he's not a theologian. He's a pastor. And, and some of us like to think that we're both, but that's probably not always true. So he struggled with some of the details a little bit. And we, we peppered him pretty hard on the blood of Christ because it's important. Because God says it's precious. And every time you willfully sin, it is the same as you saying the blood of Christ is nothing. You know, if somebody was to come into our church and desecrate it, you know, I don't know what would be really bad to you if they were to paint a swastika or, you know, spread things around that were nasty. I mean, whatever they could do that would just make you think, oh, those people are so terrible. You know what? That's what God thinks when you willfully sin. He's saying, look at the blood of Christ. You're smearing dirt on the blood of Christ. Wow. We're trampling under the Son of God underfoot. We're counting the blood of the covenant, a common thing. And number three, he says, we are insulting the Spirit of grace. Insulting the Spirit of grace. Do you know what the word is here? I, and I apologize for referring to so many Greek words today. I'm not a great Greek scholar, but some of these words are so full of meaning. It's the word hubridzo or hubris. We use that once in a while in our English language. Some folks use it more than others. It means excessive pride or arrogance. When you sin willfully, you are demonstrating hubris toward God, toward his spirit in particular. You know what the most poignant example of hubris is to me? It's Saddam Hussein going on TV saying, their blood will run in the streets. And we're reading that going, are you kidding me? Are you out of your mind? It's 10 years ago when Saddam Hussein says, this is going to be the mother of all battles. And it's more like the mother of all defeats. And we're thinking, man, you are an arrogant something or other. That's the word. 
He says, when we sin willfully, we're looking up into heaven going, I don't care what you say. Who do you think you are? And that's awfully arrogant for the creature to say to the creator. In Isaiah 14, you can look there later, Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, we have a passage of scripture that talks about an earthly king and I believe also talks about Satan. And Satan strolls up to God one day in eternity past. He's an angel, he's a created being, and he says, I want to sit on the big chair. That's hubris. That is arrogance. But when we sin, we're telling God we want to sit on the big chair. Well, what's the result here? Verse 30 of Hebrews 10. For we know him. We know him who said this, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, please. Just a couple of pages past the end of the book of Hebrews. 1 Peter 4. Verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin. Where? At the house of God. He doesn't say it's time for God to go out there in the world and start letting them unbelievers have it. He said it's time for judgment to begin and judgment should begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved or barely saved, where will the sinner and the ungodly appear? So, gee, Pastor Dave, I, I haven't noticed that verse before. He says it's time for judgment to begin here. John MacArthur said this a number of years ago about about our sin and he said you can confess your sin publicly to God or God will confess it publicly you can confess it privately to God or God will confess it publicly for you say what do you mean well if you don't take care of your sin it's going to become obvious to everybody and the consequences are going to become worse God says we must judge ourselves." And for those of you that are here today, you're thinking, what, I knew those Baptists were fire and brimstone. Boom, well, I'm not going back there. Hey, just remember, the difference between our church and some others is we're going to preach the whole Bible to you, and we're going to warn you that you're getting on the dangerous ground, and we're going to try to entice you to get onto the solid ground of blessing. Philippians 2.12 says we are to work out our godliness. That's after we accept Christ. We don't work to earn our godliness. Once we accept Christ, we, worked, we work out our godliness with fear and trembling. Could I put a little bottom line on this today? If I, wanted, if I were to summarize it in one phrase that maybe you'll take out the door. You should be afraid to live in sin. That's the bottom line. You should not think, well, you know, some Christians live righteously and some of them don't, and well, whatever. You should be afraid to live in sin. And, and when I have people in my office say, I'm going to live in sin, I think, oh, please don't do that. 
Because if you think your life is in a conflict and a trial now, it is going to be worse. Because the wages of sin is death. And that's not just eternal death. That is eternal death, but it's also a death quality of life. Okay, class, close your books, take out a piece of paper. We're going to have a pop quiz. Some of you are, some of you are thinking... Now, I know he likes to joke a lot. I hope this is a joke. Some of you are thinking, is he going to grade these? Some of you are thinking, do I put my name on the left hand or the right hand side of the paper? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 13.5. Oh, you, you told me to close my book. No, open it up again. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Those words that I just uttered can strike fear into the heart of students, young and old. We're going to have a pop quiz. Well, here's your pop quiz. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself. <laughs> Maybe that's a difference between us and some other fire and brimstone folks is I'm not going to examine you. God is. And you are. Listen to this. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? I believe this is a warning both to, to unbelievers and supposed believers and real believers. The disqualification he talks about there. He says, look inside. The great news about this test is, folks, it's an open book test. It's self-graded. It's reviewed by the teacher through the confirming Holy Spirit, and it's demonstrated in our life. I don't want to scare any of you who are walking with the Lord day by day by day. It's not my intent to make you feel bad today, but it is my intent to warn you and everybody else here God takes this thing seriously, Christian. And if I could just end on a positive note, the wonderful thing about you taking it seriously is your life will start to come together just like you've been wanting it to through sin, but now it's going to really come together through righteousness. Heavenly Father, oh, do your work here today. Take my stumbling efforts to enunciate your words and make them clear in our hearts. Father, it's easy for us to think that you don't take things seriously because we don't see people getting dropped dead in church. And yet, Father, we are reminded today that we do not know when our day might come even as we have seen our brother struggle with his heart problem again. And we need to be ready to see you face to face. Make it so. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at 
www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone 360-384-3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's Word will give you hope for life.